Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. My guest today, Ivo Dalder, served as the United States Ambassador to NATO under President Obama from 2009 to 2013. He is now the President of the Chicago Council on Foreign Relations, and he is co-author with James Lindsay of the new book, The Empty Throne, America's Abdication of Global Leadership. The book offers a comprehensive account of the first two years of President Trump's foreign policy, and in so doing, it offers an unsparing criticism of what the authors argue is a grand strategic failure of the Trump administration. Simply put, the authors argue that the United States is ceding its global leadership position in ways that are harmful to U.S. interests. Now, for those of you who have been around the foreign policy world for a while, you may recall that Evo Dalder and James Lindsay last teamed up for the 2005 book, America Unbound, The Bush Revolution in Foreign Policy. That book won all sorts of awards, and rightly so. It was the first book to really offer a full picture of the immense scope of the foreign policy failures of the first term of the George W. Bush administration. So, we kick off this conversation comparing that era to the one we are currently in. As always, if you want to get in touch with me, you can do so using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com. And a big thank you to everyone who is leaving reviews of the show on iTunes. I know I ask you to do this often, but it is a great way to help spread the word about the show. So, please do consider leaving a review of the show. Tell the world why you listen to the show week in, week out. I'd so appreciate it. All right, now here is my conversation with Evo Dalder. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. So I received a review copy of your book uh, from your publisher and you know arrived in the mail i opened it and i see okay here is evo dalder and james Lindsay writing a book uh, examining the grand strategic failures of a republican president and i think it is 2005 again uh and that's actually kind of where i, I wanted to to start which is how you would compare sort of this moment in uh, America's global leadership and America's image abroad to that uh, of 2005, in which you sort of previously examined the failures of, of the Bush administration's first term? Well, that's a, uh, that's a great question. And in fact, uh, the origin of this book, uh, The Empty Throne, came out of a conversation that Jim and I had shortly after uh, the election of Donald Trump. And and I said to Jim, I think this is a moment that we uh, we will look back at 
uh, and want to record and maybe start thinking about if we were to do a book on, say, the first year of Trump, how would we do that uh, and, and what would the story be? Um, so we've been thinking about writing the book uh, from the beginning. We didn't actually start writing it until the end of the first year uh, in December of, uh, of 2017. Um, and the theme that we had, and it's the theme of the book, is and, and where it is, I think, different from, from what we did with uh, the Bush administration, is that American global leadership uh, was uh, being stressed. It was under, under, uh, under attack in some ways uh, and had been um, being challenged uh, from a growing Chinese threat, uh, reemergence of a Russian threat, uh, a growing sense that perhaps our uh, leadership in, in the early part of the century had not been as effective as we wanted it to be, um, that uh, Obama's foreign policy had already been a response to uh, those kinds of developments. And the real question was, how would a, a new president who came in with a very different view of America's role in the world deal with the reality of global leadership? Um, the, the difference that we discovered, uh, and I think that's the, the essence of the book, is that in contrast to Bush, um, who did believe in American leadership, uh, he had a very unilateralist view about how to, how to do that, but he believed that the United States needed to lead, needed to support uh, alliances, needed to uh, ensure open and free trade, needed to bring democracy, uh, perhaps a little too forcefully, but needed to promote uh, democracy and freedom. Uh, and and sort of fell within the mainstream norm of post-war American presidents um, that Donald Trump actually wasn't in that norm, that he was very different, that he didn't actually believe in leadership. Uh, and he doesn't talk about leading. It's not part of his vocabulary. Uh, and that sort of the, the mainstays, the main pillars of American foreign policy, alliances, free trade, democracy, uh, were the three things he actually didn't believe in. Uh, and he had a very different point of view. So that's... That's the difference. But, you know, it's also probably fair to say that much like Trump, Bush, at least in, in the first term, because sort of, there was like a course correction in the second term, wasn't really much right. of, of a multilateralist, right? I mean, you sure you remember, you know, I know I remember all the hand wringing, uh, you know, is this the end of NATO? Is this sort of like, is the UN forever crippled by, you know, Bush's uh, more or less unilateral decision? Although there are, you know, some allies, of course, uh, joined the, the, the war in Iraq. Um, they they seem to have shared that sort of similar thread. Yeah, uh, clearly he was more uh, Bush was uh, was clearly a unilateralist uh, uh, and in a belief that the exertion of power uh, would lead others to follow uh, uh, one's lead. But he was interested in followers. He cared about how many people were were with him. Uh, recall how how convoluted in many ways the attempt was. Uh, in March and April of 2003 to demonstrate how broad the coalition effort was in Iraq, even though we all know it wasn't very broad. You know, it was this famous press conference with, uh, uh, with the military leadership and all the, all the, the, the colonels and, and, and captains from uh, other nations were standing behind him in order to demonstrate how big the, the, the coalition was. You, you, you don't hear Donald Trump talking about coalitions. Uh, you don't hear him talk about uh, how many people are following his lead. What you hear him talking about is winning for America, and it's a very, uh, very different conception of how to how to engage the world: leading versus winning. Um, and so the methods may have been similar, uh, 
uh, unilateralist, uh, an emphasis on the use of force. Um, but the purpose uh, was different. What what Bush wanted was other people to come along with him, and he spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to get them to come uh, come along. Um, uh, and and that's just not where Donald Trump is. Uh, he doesn't actually care about who's with us. Uh, he cares about whether he beats us uh, and us being allies as well as adversaries. Every nation is the same, and it's, and it's looked at as a way to, you know, what, what is its contribution to America first uh, rather than anything else? And that's a different view of how we should engage the world. So just like a, a profoundly zero-sum kind of view of, of the world. Exactly. exactly. Yeah, and, 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 and Bush still had a, a positive sum. I mean, he might have denigrated allies, and they did at times, particularly when they disagreed. Yeah, the old, I, the old Europe and, and versus new the old Europe. Europe. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah but and, and there was that, but but it was it was it was designed to shame him into doing more uh, uh, to follow our lead. Um, so he never put a question mark about NATO uh, in a way that Donald Trump did. He's never talked. Never talked about the European Union as a foe. Uh, in the way that Donald Trump has. Um, and so it is profoundly different. Yeah, I mean, it's almost as if um, Trump is almost like indifferent to uh, a lot of these kind of multilateral institutions, whereas Tr uh, Bush was like perhaps hostile to them. Uh, but you know, indifference is sort of a, a worse sort of uh, sort of is sort of worse than being sort of hated, right? Well, I mean, I, yes. I mean, Bush saw the value of them, but he also saw that uh, that there were problems with multilateral institutions that they posed constraints on on the freedom of action by the United States, which is sort of by definition what multilateral institutions are about. Um, I think um, the the view that Donald Trump has of the world is a very uh, sort of atomic view in the sense that you have a bunch of individual states. Uh, and the goal of their interaction is to beat them. And it doesn't matter whether they're neighbors or allies or friends or people who, uh, uh, who've been with us for a very long time. It's all about winning. Uh, and he talks about winning incessantly. It's what Make America Great is all about. Um, and the winning is a zero-sum definition. It's why he says that trade deficits are bad, and the only good trading relationship with another country is one in which the U.S. has a surplus. Um, and, and, and it's that zero-sum view, as if every interaction internationally is like buying a building. It's a real estate uh, transaction in which you pay X, and hopefully that X is the lowest amount possible, uh, to get Y. Um, and that's all it, that's all it is. Well, that's not how international politics works. So the, the global multilateral system from which you argue in your book, the Trump administration is, is advocating, advocating, abdic abdicating, pardon me, leadership, um, is one in which, you know, was, was created by the United States after World War II. Can, can you just talk a little bit about the ways in which this system over the, the decades have um, have have sort of benefited the United States? Have benefited uh, Americans? Well, I think you got to go back to uh, the pre World War II era. So, uh, after World War One, which the U.S. reluctantly uh, entered into in 1917, um, uh, uh, immediately after the end of the war, which because of U.S. intervention uh, we won together with the Brits and the French, um, and led to the Versailles Treaty. 
uh, we decided to to retreat and re- retreat back into the U.S. and said, okay, we 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 were there because there was a threat. The threat's now dealt with, and now we're going to go home. Uh, and uh, the interwar period, the 20s and 30s, was a period of of uh, great instability, uh, huge challenges to democracy in countries like Germany and Italy. Uh, ultimately, the end of democracy in those countries, uh, and uh, a, uh, a, a an economic relationship led by the United States that was stressing autarky and tariffs and the need for us to cut ourselves off from the rest of the world, and that helped contribute to World War II. And the leaders who were fighting World War II decided that perhaps what was happening in 1918 shouldn't happen in 1945, that uh, the U.S. had no choice but to be engaged in the world, and that, in fact, by being engaged, we could perhaps prevent a return to uh, great power wars. Uh, So the the system that was set up, what we now refer to as the liberal or or rules-based world order, was a system of collective security institutions, starting with the United Nations, but then also a whole series of alliance relationships, uh, first with our, our allies and friends in Latin America, the, uh, which is a, has a treaty-based uh, uh, collective security uh, effort, and then, of course, with, through NATO and, in Europe, and ultimately uh, in, through a series of bilateral uh, relationships in Asia. Um, the same was true on, on trade. I believe that uh, having agreed rules on trade and, and opening up markets was the best way to create interdependencies and to limit the possibility of a return to war. So we had the General Agreement on Trade and Tariffs that was uh, uh, commenced in, in the 1940s uh, and negotiated and a whole series of trading rounds that ultimately led to the creation of the, the World Trading Organization. We were bringing in more and more countries into that system in a, in, in a way to say you should benefit from the system uh, and therefore uh, take away the possibility of the use of force to settle settle differences. And we did the same on human rights. And the Universal Declaration of Human Rights was negotiated immediately after World War II. Uh, the support for, for freedom and democracy became an essential part of our foreign policy in the belief that if if countries were secure, and they were prosperous, and they were free, they were unlikely to go to war with each other. And if we could undergird that system uh, through our leadership, uh, even if that leadership meant that sometimes we had to pay a little bit more for defense or we had to open our markets a little more to uh, products from other countries, um, that in the end, that system would benefit not, every, not only everybody else, but particularly us, that it was cheaper uh, to engage and lead that system than to have to uh, go back to where we were in the first part of the 20th century, which is multiple wars. And that's the essence of our uh, of our engagement in the world uh, and, frankly, is now being challenged by, so, by Trump's foreign policy. Well, so, so what are the implications then to, like, your ordinary average American uh, citizen uh, for Trump's chipping away at at this kind of liberal world order in which the U.S. stood as the the, the leader. So two two things. I mean, one is if if countries uh, no longer feel that they can rely on the United States for their uh, for their security and defense in the way they have since really since 1941, uh, they will start taking measures and steps to protect themselves uh, uh, in, in, in ways that uh, may not contribute to security. They will either uh, pose a threat to their own neighbors or become so insecure uh, 
that they will take preemptive action, for example, to say, I, I, I don't know what my neighbor is going to do. I'm, I may have to start uh, uh, using military force. That, def- that uh, most importantly in places like Europe or in Asia, that countries start thinking about war and security in ways they haven't thought about for 70 years, that this is a real possibility. Are we seeing any, 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 any examples of that yet, do you think? Not yet, not yet, but you are seeing countries uh, increasingly moving uh, in, in sort of in their own, uh, accommodating to other bigger powers. So you see people uh, throughout the world starting to accommodate the Chinese uh, military power and saying, if I can't rely on the United States, then maybe I should uh, align myself more closely to a, a Russia or a China uh, in order to protect myself. Um, more basically, uh, we have eliminated for the last 70 years the possibility of great power war. But if we're going to have a real competition uh, with a China or a Russia, uh, where um, the possibility just exists that that escalation or accidental uh, interaction, military interactions may happen, um, that that can lead to war. It's it's the it's the if you don't have this system. Mm-hmm. Uh, you go back to having nations caring only about themselves, cutting themselves off in a trading relationship uh, through tariffs or other means that that is already happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, that uh, the possibility of confrontation just goes up. That war becomes a new a, an instrument of statecraft. Yeah, you know, uh, I always tell people like you know the most basic um, value, the most basic success of the United Nations is that there has been no great power war since the advent of of the United Nations. And if you're going to chip away yeah. the power of the United Nations, you're probably increasing the likelihood that great powers will go to war with each other once again. I mean, clearly the United Nations and and the rest of the multilateral system has been very important to to sort of reduce, if not eliminate, uh, the possibility of great power war. But that system has been undergirded by American power and leadership. Uh, it's been the glue that keeps the, the system together. If you take American power and leadership away... Uh, it's not clear that the system can survive. We'll, we'll, you know, we're, we're entering an experiment where we'll see that. Um, and, and, and multilateralism exists because the United States is the leading power in the world wanted it to exist, has built it uh, over the past 70 years. And now we have a president who actually thinks the system is the problem, who believes that uh, countries have taken advantage of the system at the expense of the United States in trade and defense spending in a whole series of areas. And he says, we're not going to do that anymore. And uh, that's, a, that's a challenge to the way the, the U.S. has engaged the world for the past 70 years. So there was a, a second uh, a sort of thread that you were going to follow, uh, but then I, I sort of cut you off. Do you recall? If no, not, no. I, I, on, yeah. yeah, no, no. I, I, it was, it's, it's, the key is that power. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and American leadership. Okay, yeah. so 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 you yeah. know your book, I, I think, is really probably like the first comprehensive critique of the first almost two years of the Trump presidency. Could you maybe share some some stories from your book, some examples that you cite in your book that sort of illustrate the the sort of thesis that that you're working with that you know the Trump administration, President Trump in particular, is um, sort of willingly abdicating this kind of global leadership position. What what um, examples would you cite, do you cite in your book that illustrate this point most clearly? Well, I, I guess one which is close to my heart, given what I've done in, in, in my past, is, is his attitude towards NATO. So here you have an alliance that next year will celebrate its 70th anniversary. 
that for uh, 40 years was at the center of American foreign policy at, during the Cold War. It was the a strong transatlantic alliance was critical to uh, deter and prevent the Soviet Union from taking over uh, uh, other parts of Europe that had, uh, beyond what it had already uh, taken over. And indeed, the more the stronger uh, the alliance was, uh, the more. Uh, uh, the Soviet Union had to reassess its own its own strategies and policies to the point that, in fact, uh, uh, the Cold War ended and and the Soviet Union collapsed uh, because it couldn't compete uh, with uh, that transatlantic relationship. Um, the uh, transatlantic relationship itself was fundamental to resolving uh, the underlying uh, instability in Europe, which was the competition between Germany and France. Uh, and seeing different European powers for power, for, for power and control of Europe. Once the United States, through NATO, indicated that we, will, we together will take care of our, each other's security, um, uh, uh, people wanted to cooperate and created the European Union and a whole series of, of other things. So this is a pretty important uh, part of American foreign policy. The, President Trump came in, and not only said that he thought the NATO was obsolete, uh, but put a serious question mark about, behind America's continued commitment to um, uh, to collective security. Uh, so Article 5 of the NATO treaty is the, the article that says an attack against one is an attack against all. He was unwilling for a very long time, for the first six months of his presidency, to say that the United States, and he particularly, still stood behind that. Um, so countries in Europe started to ask the question, is the United States, for the first time really in, in 70 years, is the United States still committed uh, to the NATO alliance? Um, uh, in uh, A few months ago, in, in July, he was asked by Tucker Carlson whether uh, you know, we really should be defending Montenegro, which is a new member of, uh, of NATO. And, and President Trump said, well, I've been asking myself that question as well. Um, not a great thing to hear if you're Montenegrin, but frankly, if you're German or French uh, or Estonian or Latvian, hearing the President of the United States calling into question the essential uh, security guarantee uh, and essence of an alliance that has existed for 70 years is jarring. And it leads one to say, okay, if he's not willing to defend Montenegro, why would he be willing to defend uh, Germany, which is a, pretty much at the core uh, of American foreign policy for the past 70 years. So, so that's so, one example. I mean, can I ask, as like a former NATO ambassador, as you know, a proud transatlanticist, as, as I presume you are, like what yep. goes through your head when, when you see the U.S. president say something like that or denigrate NATO in that way or call into question just like the fundamental aspects of the transatlantic relationship? Uh, well, it, it, it almost is personal. Uh, in the sense that I've devoted my uh, 58 and a half years uh, to embodying the transatlantic uh, relationship. I was born in, and raised in Europe. I uh, became an American citizen. Uh, I was uh, extraordinarily honored and proud to be able to represent the United States at the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. Um, and in some sense, it's personal. Uh, but in, beyond personal, it's, it's uh, asking the question, what benefit... What is it that one is achieving uh, by calling into question a institution uh, that has been at the center of American foreign policy for 70 years? Barack Obama used to call NATO the cornerstone 
of America's engagement in the world. And pulling away the cornerstone in a building, we know what happens. It collapses. Not just uh, the alliance, but everything that comes with it. Um, and so uh, the question one asks is, what are you trying to accomplish? What are you trying to achieve? It's frankly a question that many of his advisors uh, were asking too. There's a, our, we opened the book uh, with a famous, uh, 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 hopefully by some people who read the book, a famous scene. Uh, uh, where the president is surrounded by his all of his advisors sitting in what's called the tank, which is the uh, uh, the place where the commanders uh, where the uh, uh, top uh, commanders of the U.S. armed forces gather, uh, including in a time of war potentially, in which Secretary Mattis of Defense and Secretary Tillerson of State and uh, Gary Cohn, uh, at that time the head of the National Economic uh, uh, com- uh, Committee. Uh, Council uh, tell and explain Trump the importance of our multilateral engagement, of our military bases, of our treaty commitments, of the trading relationships that we have, of our uh, embassies abroad and diplomatic engagement to say, this is what the U.S. has done. It's built this extraordinary network of of global engagement that has led to our security and prosperity and, and freedom and democracy for the past 70 years. And Trump says, I don't get it. This is not working for me. We are paying a lot of money to keep troops in South Korea, and what is it doing for us? Um, and and even though they are trying to explain why it matters, he doesn't he doesn't grab it, uh, and he's calling into question sort of the fundamental way in which the U.S. is engaged abroad. That's a big deal. So so can the U.S. recover from this moment in any meaningful way? I mean, can uh, you know maybe we can come back, but we can't come back all the way. So uh, every day that passes becomes more difficult to come back because we are sliding down a a pretty steep hill. Uh, We haven't reached the bottom yet. Uh, We are still sliding and we can stop at some point and hope that there's a bush or a tree that we can hold on before it's all too late. Um, uh, But increasingly countries, and you see this on the trading front, are turning away from us and saying, you know, we're really not interested in trying to find a new way to have a a, a trading deal with you. We're going to do it with other countries. And so take uh, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, uh, where we were part of that, and and, uh, President Trump, as one of the first things he did, walked away from it. Uh, That meant that all of a sudden the Japanese market uh, was no longer available to our pork producers or uh, or agricultural uh, producers in the same way that the Japanese then opened the market to the European Union. And so Amer- American farmers are no longer able to export their uh, uh, their goods at, uh, compared at, uh, at, at, at competitive prices in a way that the Europeans are. Um, so the world is marching on even without us and we're no longer uh, able to lead. Now, uh, if we were to change policy, be it under President Trump or a, a new president, uh, the U.S. is still the most important country in the world. It's still the most powerful military. It's still the biggest economy. It still uh, represents uh, a lot of what's good about the world. And it perhaps working with others can regain part of that leadership. 
Um, but it's going to take a lot of work. And the longer we slide down the hill, the closer we get to the bottom, uh, the more difficult it will be to, to get back. So your your comments uh, sort of uh, remind me of something that uh, someone I presume you know pretty well, the former German ambassador to the US, Klaus Schwab, told me in, in an interview. Pardon me, not Klaus Schwab. Um, Klaus Scherioth. Wolfgang Ischen. No, no, no. Klaus Scherioth. Yeah, Klaus Scherioth told me in an interview, maybe like six six months ago, that you know what always Europe admired of the U.S., what he admired of the U.S., having you know studied the U.S. for for so long and been professionally engaged, is its sort of capacity for self correction, um, and, and that sort of leads me to sort of wonder if. Um, sort of one source of American leadership in the world is an admiration for the strength of our institutions and that some of the lasting damage done to America's global, global leadership position is not just sort of the decisions taken by the Trump administration to like withdraw from the Paris Accord or denigrate NATO, but rather sort of the erosion of, of sort of the institutions of our own democracy that his um, presidency has, has, has sort of marked. Uh, I'm wondering if if that's sort of an element of of this kind of puzzle that that you piece together that Trump's sort of really real lasting damage is that he's kind of punctured the mystique of of the strength of uh, American institutions. Well, and and there's there's I think there's still a, people observing it and saying okay how resilient are the institutions just as I think Americans are observing how resilient are the institutions how tribal have we become as a society how polarized. Uh, are we uh, is the free press still able to fulfill its its role traditionally? Do, do the checks and balances still work? I think people uh, watching from abroad, just as the people here at home, uh, asking those questions, they don't have uh, quite the answers. What they do notice, and what is very significant, is that this is the first American president. If you want to draw a contrast to George W. Bush in particular, it's the first American president who actually doesn't advocate for these institutions and these characteristics in other societies. He doesn't advocate for democracy. He doesn't care about freedom. He doesn't talk about um, the uh, human rights and other abuses that are happening in, in other countries, aside from Venezuela and Iran, and, uh, but even North Korea. It, you know, he, he, uh, it's no longer mentioned that there are, this is one of the worst human rights violators in the world. Uh, and yet, no one talks about it, uh, and certainly not President Trump. And so, the idea of the United States, and that not only is a beacon of freedom, which, by the way, is one of the reasons I came to this country uh, as an immigrant, uh, and so many others have, uh, um, but no longer a defender uh, of democracy and freedom, and is willing to embrace any tin, tin pot dictator, and, and uh, whether it's uh, Sisi of Egypt or, or uh, the, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, uh, or indeed Putin and, 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 and Xi Jinping, uh, hardly Democrats, uh, either uh, any of those, uh, and embracing all of them uh, as if they are somehow uh, the, the model for us all to follow. I think a lot of countries are saying, where is the United States going? Why is it uh, that the president of the United States, who used to be known as the leader of the free world, uh, uh, is no longer leading or caring about the free world? And that is, I think, uh, in the end, will have a major negative impact uh, on the ability of other countries to say, we want to be with you, uh, rather than uh, saying, maybe we should go our own way and find our own uh, uh, means to uh, to deal with our own future in a way that is uh, suboptimal but better than the alternative. 
All right, well, Ambassador, you and uh, Jim Lindsay have written like, another vital book. Um, as I said earlier, it really is like a, probably the most comprehensive examination of, of the you know first two years of, of the Trump presidency's foreign policy. Thank you for spending time with me. Thank you for, for writing this book. And uh, good luck. Is there anything else we should look out for from you and anything else you'd want to plug before I let you go? Uh, no, I think one, one of the things I'm, let me just highlight, uh, 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 something that uh, Jim and I wrote about in foreign affairs, which is actually not in the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do, we do, we make the argument that the allies, uh, particularly what we call the G nine, the nine most important allies the United States has from in North America and Canada and for the strong European countries. And then in Asia, Japan, Australia, South Korea, the European union, uh, that they have a stake in maintaining this international system and this international order. And they ought to, not only on the trading relationships where they already are moving forward, but on the security side, uh, take more of a leadership role uh, and undergird uh, and try to find ways to, to, to keep together the rules-based order so that when uh, uh, a new uh, American policy is forthcoming, again, whether it's a change by Trump of direction, which is unlikely, but it's possible, uh, or a new president, uh, there is a, a a cooperation that can be had with the strongest allies that we uh, have around to uh, to maintain and strengthen the international order. Uh, ultimately, if if no one else is going to uphold it, the Chinese and and others are going to be beating us at our own game, and that's not a good thing for us, or for frankly, for much of the rest of the world. Uh, well, I'll post a, a link to that article then. Thank you. Thank you for your time. All right. Terrific. Thanks. Uh-huh. All the best. Bye bye. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Ambassador Evo Dalder, Bedankt, as they'd say in the Netherlands. And yeah, as I mentioned, I really do highly recommend this book. I'll post a link to its Amazon page on globaldispatchespodcast.com. And of course, as always, to the University of Manchester's Global Development Institute for being an institutional supporter of the show. If you are with an institution and you want to support the show, uh, please send me an email and you can do so using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com. All right, we'll see you next time. Bye.